my name is Joel, and uh, we are in the book of Samuel for a few weeks. We're actually uh, closing off Samuel this year for um, uh, a series that has finally come to an end. We've been in the book of Samuel for, for a long time, and we're just uh, getting to the point where we're about ready to finish it. So if you have your Bible with you, we're in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15, and... Um, we're going just slowly towards the end by, by the summer break. Um, God willing, we will have finished off uh, the story of David as told in the book of Samuel. Uh, this is a story that directly relates to our lives, as does all the Bible when we read it uh, as God intends it. This is God's gift to us. He speaks to us through this book. Often, week after week, here in this place, we, we open it and he uses it to touch our very lives and the things we're going through in our ordinary day-to-day existence are, are touched and affected by what we see here in the book. Uh, for some of you, it may be that you're going through a season a little bit like the one David goes through in this story where he is being uh, excluded from a situation, rejected from a situation, He's actually being betrayed by his own son, in fact, who uh, has turned against him and has uh, worked over a series of cunning moves over a period of time to take over his throne. And we're at the point where David, seeing the danger of the situation, seeing that he's literally at risk, his life is in danger, his, his son Absalom has become this kind of brutal, ruthless monster. And David knows that he, he has to make quick decisions to, to create any hope in the situation. Leaves the city with just a few, a small uh, kind of remnant of loyalists who who see him, David, as the true king and haven't turned over to the, the traitor Absalom. And uh, although I, you know, those, those situations aren't directly relevant to us, the idea of being betrayed, being, being let down by those we've loved, perhaps being rejected by wider mainstream society even, can feel at least familiar to us. For some of us who, who follow Jesus, it, it can often feel like that because to follow Jesus is actually to, to at least risk the possibility that we will, we will not always fit in with the, with the mainstream culture because Jesus, Jesus is always somewhat out of step. Jesus, although we might have very respectful views of him from you know, 2,000 years later, in his own time, Jesus wasn't well received by people and those who follow him should expect to have similar experiences of being kind of out of kilter, out of whack with the, the wider scene and having to just handle that and walk through that well is one of the challenges of being a Christian. And David in his pre-Jesus, thousand years before Jesus was born stage of history, is kind of experiencing the same thing here. He's being exiled. He's being squeezed out, pushed out of uh, mainstream society and feeling some of the pressure of that, some of the, the strain of that. I guess whatever our experiences of betrayal or personal rejection might be in life, 
we'll go through times of definite pressure and strain where we're struggling to know how we're going to make things work, how we're going to get back to a place of security and stability. And uh, I hope that what I have to, to share with you and the story we see here today relates to those things that we all go through in our lives. So, so let me read to you from uh, chapter 15, and I'm going to read to you from verse 30 up to verse uh, 4 of chapter 16. So we'll, we'll take it from 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told, David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Achimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Zeba, why have you brought these? Zeba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where is your master's son? Zeba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Let's just pray together. Father, thank you for this book, these writings that are given us from you, your heart, kindly given us, so that we can understand you and your ways, understand your son and his rescuing work on our behalf, his life poured out for us, uh, that we might be accepted, received, and find ourselves free from accusation in your house. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. And we we just pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit, also given as a gift, that we might learn and experience and know you today and have our hearts changed, not just educated and instructed, but changed by the encounter that we have with God in the Word. We ask you for these things according to your mercy and your mercy alone, because we have no claim to make before you other than that. And we ask it 
in your name. Amen. Amen. So uh, I've been to the place where David right now is, is kind of making his exit from Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. It's still there. It's still a place you can go to. If you go to the, the bottom of the valley between uh, the Mount of Olives and, and the mountain that Jerusalem was originally built on, the hill that it was built on, you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, which literally means olive press, Gethsemane, olive press, uh, where olives would be pressed in order for the, the oil to, to come forth for, for what you stick on a salad. You know, it's, 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 it's a, an ancient kind of uh, fruit from agriculture that, that would have been normal in those days. In fact, there are trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, I discovered when I was there, that are 2,000 years old, older than the New Testament. They would have been there when Jesus was praying there. And Jesus uh, famously spent the last night of his life before crucifixion, praying in that very place, in the place where David has been traveling at this point of great pressure. Both of them going through the, the kind of olive press of their own. David's olive press of being betrayed by his son. Jesus' olive press, that the pressure of being betrayed by his people, Israel, rejected by the nation, just as David is rejected by the same nation. And, and in this part of the story, we see the additional pain for David of being also rejected by his, his dear friend, Ahithophel. Now, we don't know, you know. When I'm reading that story, I know for many of us, we're thinking, I don't know who any of these names belong to. I don't know the places this is referring to. This is all kind of obscure to me. Am I supposed to be getting something out of this? Well, no, I understand. You know, we don't all spend 20 hours a week in the Old Testament, much as we should. Uh, we don't. Uh, we're, we're probably sort of thinking, what, what on earth is going on with this, this story here? What is actually meant by it? Well, the key thing here is that David's already in a position of weakness. And now his kind of consultant number one, his advisor, who he would have had some close probable friendship with, you know, a trustful, respectful, affectionate relationship would have likely grown between these two men, David and Ahithophel. And Ahithophel is kind of world-class advisor. We'll find out as the story goes how high the respect to Ithophel was. He, he was. he was a kind of consultant that firms will spend six figures for a few hours with. He would change the destiny of a campaign. He's the kind of guy that, that presidents quickly get into the Oval Office if their approval rating goes down or if it looks like they're going to lose the White House or Congress. We need to get Ithophel in. He will change everything. A few hours with him and the staff, he can, he can shift it. He was that level of genius. And now not only has David got to face the personal pain of losing him and seeing him betray David, but he's also losing his power, losing the potency of this extraordinary gift. He's now joined the other side. David's tasting betrayal at, at a sharp level. And again, it, it reminds us of Jesus, who at this very same place tasted the betrayal of nation turning against him, disciples denying him and running, one of them literally betraying him to the authorities. Judas coming to Jesus in the garden and kissing him so that they would publicly know which one to arrest. David here is, is being a kind of prototype Jesus, 
and, and we're seeing him having to go through the pain of that, but we're also seeing from this some lessons for ourselves to apply when we undergo similar challenges and pains. Maybe we won't go through quite the epic level of difficulty that David and Jesus go through, but we'll go through trials of our own, and if we follow Jesus anywhere, and I hope we're looking to follow Jesus quite a lot if we're here, we will know some of this pressure. So how do we see David handling it? Well, I just want to draw a couple of things here. I want to draw one thing positive from his example or from his story, and one thing that we should kind of draw the opposite lesson from. We should do the opposite. The first of them is we should notice that God is quietly busy. God is quietly busy. Even in these these disastrous situations. I get that from verse 37, where it says that Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Now, some background to this. Ahithophel is the one that's, that's turning on David and joining the other side. Hushai, who shows up a bit, bit later in the story, you remember, he, he is ready to show complete loyalty. He comes up with his clothes all torn, which was a, a way of expressing grief and empathy. He's saying to, to David, look, I, I, I feel, you feel ripped up, I feel ripped up. Let me show you. And, it, and this is a, you know, an ancient Jewish way of expressing grief and shared grief together, rending our garments. And he's saying to David, what do you want me to do? How can I help you in this, this horrible situation? David's response, which probably seemed a little surprising to Hushai, is actually, okay, go back. I want you to do the surprising thing. You go back into the city. And what's he doing? He's actually setting up a kind of scheme of counter-espionage. He's got the priests in there on his side. He's got the sons of the priests, and now he's got Hushai. And he says, listen, Ahithophel has joined Absalom. I want you to go in. And I want you to, to offer contrary advice so that Absalom will follow your advice instead of, instead of Ahithophel's advice and make mistakes. So you need to cleverly lead him astray. Now, David is being kind of cunning here. This is smart. This is the kind of cunning that's sometimes appropriate and necessary when we're in tough, pressurized situations. But what I also want you to see here is how quietly successful this is. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of referred to in that closing verse of the chapter like a kind of little clue in the narrative, like a kind of smoking gun, like, a, like just a kind of little uh, clue left somewhere, arranged somewhere for us to notice there's something going on in this situation. That last sentence, so Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So at the point when everything looks most lost and most bleak, when Absalom, this kind of serpent-like thug, and I'm afraid that's, that's about it. Um, Absalom was, was David's son, but entirely unfaithful, rebellious, ungrateful, cruel, selfish person who's turned on his father wickedly and called the nation away from David. Imagine that. Imagine the cruelty of that, winning 
it's like it's like trying to win your father's bride away, win you know, win the, the love of his life away. Kind of just it's 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 real treachery. He's pulling him away, pulling pulling the nation away, I should say, and going into the city now with a group of well, it's a coup d'état. This is like a military takeover. These things never go well. You only have to read a few stories to know that this, this, is a, this is a dark moment for the city. Who knows what's going to be set up in the absence of the true king, in the absence of God's true anointed king, the absence of the Messiah, David, on the throne in God's city as the rightful ruler, bringing God's justice to the nation. Oh, he's been deposed. Who's going to go in his place? Absalom? This, this cruel person, this tyrannical person, it's, it's a horrible moment for Israel. Just as there are horrible moments in history where we, we scratch our heads or, 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 or worse, we, we kind of we throw up our hands, we, yeah, we tear our clothes. We think, what, what is God doing in this? How could it have got so bleak? How could the situation have got so dark? How could my life have got so dark? How could it, how could it have got so, so, so hopeless? And, and the writer of this book, whoever wrote this extraordinary book, wants you to notice just this little throwaway verse, just at the point when Absalom and his guys are walking in, Hushai arrives as well. God's man arrives too, quietly, almost unbeknown. <laughs> maybe, maybe no one made any comment the day he turned up, the moment he turned up. It's not getting the headlines. It's not getting any interest on social media. There's no one clicking on this. This is not important. This is just any other guy showing up. But here's the thing, when you read this story through, as we will over the coming weeks, you'll see that the outcome pivots on this guy. This guy, this, this nobody who David's just sent in quietly. It's because of this move that history changes, the story turns. Now, I'm telling you this because we, we generally cannot see quite what God is doing. We, we can't trace it. We don't know his moves. We often think we do, but we're quite deceived. We, 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 we're certainly at least partially blinded. And, and our grasp of his ways and his, the threads he's pulling, the moves he's making, is, is obscured. Our, our, our ability to see it is obscured by the things that we can see plainly. The things that get our attention and preoccupy the media and force themselves into our face. The stuff that looks bleak and makes us feel bleak. The, 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 the sense that even from the point of view of Christianity, the, kind of, the culture is swinging further and further away from what God says. That our lives can, can feel difficult. That our walk with Jesus can leave us isolated. I know not everyone here is a Christian, but if, if, you, if you aren't a Christian, you'll still be able to sympathise and watch what happens sometimes when you're in a situation where you're the, the odd one out and, and you, feel, you feel that sense of uh, kind of being marginalised. Well, well, Christians will often feel like that. Maybe the only Christian in their family or their workplace or college or school or, or university or whatever, just in their flat or their house. Just, and, and, and even if you're not, just the general sense, culture, like what is the future for the church? How, how is the church going to make any impact? How is the church going to prevail in a culture where actually the light is going out and the gospel's being pr- sort of 
marginalised, or at least that's the, the attempt that seems to be being made, hope can start to diminish and we can start to fall into despair. It's just so bleak. How, how, is, how is this situation going to be rectified? What, what's God doing? He's not doing anything that I can see. Well, I reckon anyone in Jerusalem would have felt like that that day. Absalom showing up with his thugs. What's God doing? This is God's, this is David's city. What is God doing? This is a Good Friday moment when they took Jesus away and accused him falsely and put him on trial and then, and then tortured him and, and then crucified him. No, no one really, hardly anybody really had the slightest grasp of what was going on. It just looked like all is lost. All is lost. And life will throw those moments at you. And they will sometimes feel like, not moments, but weeks and months. You think, what is going on? Why, why is God not acting? Why is God not doing something? Why is God not showing up and glorifying himself? Why, why is he allowing the things to get said and done that get said and done, even about him? Where is he? And if you've never felt like that, I, I wonder if you're following Jesus, because if you follow him, you'll start to feel for his name. You'll feel for your king. You'll feel for the fact that he's been cast out and strung up on a cross. You'll feel like this isn't right. Those Good Friday moments will definitely occur. And these are the times where we need these kinds of verses. Actually, quietly, <laughs> unbeknownst to most, God is at work. Even in the dark moments, even in the Good Fridays, God is doing a lot. God is doing stuff. God is doing something extraordinary. God is wisely moving all kinds of things around. God knows his business. He knows his work. And so often the things that God does in our lives, in history, in, in this book, seem at least at first extremely modest, don't they? If you read this through and look carefully at the stories of how God shows up in situations and just turns them around, Notice how unpromising they look. I mean, it's just one ordinary guy showing up in the city at the same time as Absalom. It, it looks modest, but it always does. When, when the nation of Israel is crying out to God while in slavery in Egypt, longing for a rescue from Pharaoh, their oppressor, what's God doing? God's busy. Busy doing what? Well, he's kind of playing with this basket on the river with a little baby in it. <laughs> Why? We're in slavery. What's this little baby in a basket going to do? It's going to get eaten by a crocodile. That's what it's going to do. It's, that's, that's nothing. That's weak. That's feeble. That's a baby in a little basket made from reeds and tar. What can you do with that? God can do anything he likes with that. God can turn history on that. God could turn history on a little girl in Persia when the nation looks like it's going to get killed because of a, a cruel man that wants all of the Jews to be put to death, this young girl called Hadassah, or we would know her as Queen Esther, somehow in a strange way wins a beauty pageant, <laughs> gets put in the king's palace. and She has this weird opportunity to make a request of the king 
she rescues a nation. God's amazingly clever. He knows how to put the right person in the right place. He knows how to defy all the opinion polls, all the headlines, all the expectations and all the predictions in a moment, in a twinkle, just by his sharp, quiet, undetectable manoeuvres. Just one prisoner turns up in the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, in Rome. One man in chains. People would have denounced him as a lunatic, a heretic, a blasphemer, or worse. Spent a lot of his life in prison, a lot of his life getting beaten up, probably stooped over. He was so badly beaten. Just this strange man, Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, just shows up in Rome. The kind of Manhattan stroke Mumbai stroke Beijing of its day. All the power, all the wealth right here. And this weird prisoner from Judea shows up, bow-legged and bald, with chains on his ankles and his wrists, and nobody. Two or three centuries later, Rome is Christian. God can do anything with anybody. And, and we, we have got to have the maturity. Friends, you have got to have the maturity. I, I'm telling you, you're going into years of your lives where to truly follow Jesus, well, that's going to feel weird in 21st century England. If it doesn't feel weird, you're not doing it properly. It will make you feel weird sometimes. doesn't mean you have to try and be weird. Just follow Jesus and you'll find it feels weird. But the weirdness will get to you sometimes. It will cause you to despair. Oh, God, what's the point? This is so hard. I'm so outnumbered. I'm so odd in this society. God knows what he's doing. He does. He knows how to manoeuvre things silently, mysteriously, turn history on a sixpence. But let's look at how this applies to our lives as well before we move on to my next point. What about the times when you're, you're trying to do something for God and it seems that <laughs> he's, he's not doing anything. He's not showing up. He's not making it worthwhile. Just to see what God is doing rather than to keep your eyes on what you wish he was doing, is often a real antidote. What do I mean by that? Well, again, it's, 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 it's a temptation for me, at least. I don't know about you. I guess sometimes in, in doing church work, doing ministry, when you, when you invite maybe your friends to church, maybe you've got used to inviting friends to church, and, and you found that out of a dozen of them, maybe one or two have actually come. And you get so frustrated and maybe quite hurt by the declines, declines of people who don't want to come that you don't notice what's happening in the lives of the one or two who do come. When we do Alpha courses, which we do in this... I've, I've done Alpha for years, not just here, but, you know, go, Alpha's quite old, you know. It goes back generation. And I used to do Alpha a really long time ago in another church. And, and I used to lead Alpha courses where on the, the, the opening supper... Only a handful of people would show up. And I'd be planning for you know, dozens and dozens to show up. We invited so many people, invited the whole town, and only a few show up. And there's a kind of disappointment that creeps in. I remember once at the end of it, I felt so upset and frustrated by how this isn't working. And my wife was with me, and she said, have you stopped to consider what God is doing in the lives of the people that did come? 
And I, I had to just grow up. I realized, wait a minute, God is doing something. It's a miracle that anybody showed up. When anybody draws one step towards Jesus, that is unexpected. That's a surprise. And we've got to learn to get good at just seeing what God is doing in the small things and getting excited and sensing this could be the beginning of something great, just like it was in this story. Let me just move on before we finish to another big lesson. And it's sadly, it's a negative one because this has all been about how you know, David makes a wise move and sees God's work in something small. But here we see in the beginning of chapter 16 a place where David makes a poor judgment. And so I want us to look at this. And the second point then is we need to judge very carefully. We need to judge very carefully. The, the background to this really quickly, Mephibosheth, hard name to say, Mephibosheth is one of David's dear friends. In fact, he's like an adopted son. He was a, a young and tragic person who had a, an accident at a very young age and, and lost the use of his legs. David basically adopted him into his family, even though Mephibosheth was from the family of David's enemy, his great enemy, King Saul. David said, I'm going to show Mephibosheth love because God has shown me love. So he reached out to this apparently undeserving, tragic person and received him into his home, to sit at his table, to be part of the family. It's a good story. It's a few chapters earlier. But at this point of crisis, Ziba, who is Mephibosheth's servant, shows up. And he shows up with a few gifts, you know, donkeys and raisins, peculiar, and uh, you know, dried fruits and stuff. And David says to him, why have you brought these? Verse 2, the king of Ziba, why have you brought these? And especially the raisins. No, he says, why have you brought these? And, and Ziba's answer is kind of, you know, Cute, or he's kind of, he's trying to be sarcastic. The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. It's kind of, you know, what do you expect? Donkeys are riding on. That's what you do, kids at the beach, you know, ride on donkeys. The bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, the wine for those to drink. So, donkeys to ride on, food to eat, wine to drink. Isn't that what it's for? But David's not asking that. He's not stupid. He's saying, why? Why are you here with gifts while Mephibosheth is not here? David's doing the right thing. He's interrogating him. That's what you do if you're leading an army. You've got to check that people are truly on your side. <laughs> you don't want traitors in your camp. So he says, well, what are you doing here? And Ziba spins this story of, yeah, I've come to bring you some gifts. I'm on your side, Dave. Got some food and drink, got some booze. It's going to have, let's crack it open. Let's have a party. We could, we could actually you know, have fun out here. Let Absalom have the city. We're, I'm here to help you. What does David respond with? Where, where's your master? So he's going further. He's interrogating him a little more, which is good. And Ziba says to him, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. So now Ziba is talking total nonsense. And really, David should see through it, but he doesn't. I'll come back to why it's nonsense in a moment. But David believes a daft story. And it's because it seems to me Zeba successfully flatters him or something. Zeba shows up with gifts. It says in Proverbs 18, verse 16, a, a, a gift will bring a man before great people. A gift will make way for people. If you, if you bring a gift, you can, you, can, you can bribe people. You can flatter people. Gifts get you places. And Zeba's managed 
to gift himself into David's favour. David should have noticed this isn't right. Something's, something's peculiar and suspicious here. But he doesn't. He makes the wrong judgment call here. He trusts somebody who's a flatterer. Now, this is just reality. In life, there's this thing called flattery. Some of us are quite good at it. Some of us know how to oil our way into people's favour. Some of us, we know that we can charm people. We can charm people, even, even actually when we're being selfish. We can give the impression that we're, I'm here for you, when actually we're not. We're not at all. We're really here completely for our own greedy interest. That's, that's true. That's what many of us like. And if people are like that, then surely it's just wise, it's just common sense to at least think carefully about how we judge people, to not just assume things. But at the same time, David, not only does he misjudge Zeba, not see through him, he completely misjudges his kind of adopted son because he allows Zeba's stupid story to be the gospel in this situation. And it is a stupid story. Mephibosheth has no right or reason whatsoever to expect good things from this coup d'etat that's happening back in Jerusalem. Absalom shows up in Jerusalem. The last thing that Mephibosheth, who is lame in both feet and belongs to the previous family, which in his culture, there's just no way that that would have been. The, the, the last thing Absalom is going to do on taking over the country, say, now I'm going to give it over to the, the grandson of Saul who was from a previous family, even previous to my father's throne. It's ridiculous. There's, no, there's, no, there's absolutely no reason. It's a bit like you know, an Arsenal supporter saying, well, Spurs have been knocked out of the cup, so maybe we're in with a chance. No, no, you got knocked out already before. So, so why go there? Yeah, why go there? That was a, that was a mistake. So you see how ludicrous it is. But David believes this weird story. Now, this is weird, isn't it? Why, why, do people do, why do we do this? And I'm saying it because, you know what? I do this. So do you, I guess. We, we, do, we do allow bad reports of other people into our heart without thinking, without checking. Maybe we do it. What reasons could there be? Maybe we're just hurt. I, you know, David, at this point, is definitely hurt. He's going through a lot of emotional pain, and it's perhaps clouding his judgment. He's just not making the right wise calls about people. Maybe we're stressed. Just life just gets frantic. We can't stop and think, and we just start to feel a bit persecuted and paranoid, and we start thinking that people have got it in for us and believing the worst of people. You ever done that? Maybe we just don't check things properly. We don't investigate. We don't allow the other person's story to be heard. Again, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17. One person speaks and seems wise until another person speaks and examines them. We've got to give space for different stories. We've got to hear, wait a minute, that person's judgment might sound good, but I should at least hear the other side before I just assume that it's right. That's just common sense, but common sense sometimes goes out the window because we don't check and we don't feel we want to. We perhaps feel pressurised and emotionally hurt. 
Maybe we just, we just haven't prayed about it. Let me think, let me ask you, do you pray about your friends? Do you pray about who you trust? Do you talk to God about who should I trust? Help me, God, to make the right decisions about who I should trust. There's a whole story in the book of Joshua about how the whole nation is led into a disastrous treaty with the Gibeonites, the tribe of Gibeon, because they didn't pray. It says Joshua did not seek the Lord, and he signs a covenant. He, he makes the decision to make a covenant with the wrong people, and the nation pays for generations to come. It is a disaster. Why does he do it? Because he didn't actually pray. He didn't seek God. Do you seek God about who you're going to trust, who you're going to befriend? And maybe it's just the, the classic problem of the echo chamber. Some of us, we just we surround ourselves. Well, I say some of us, all of us, we will, if we're not careful, habitually surround ourselves with people who make exactly the same judgment of other people that we do. We, we, we maybe go home from a meeting. Maybe if you're married, you go home with your husband and wife. And what you immediately start doing after being with other people is, is kind of evaluating them. And one of you starts to make a slightly negative comment, and the other person, sometimes, frankly, just to fit in with you, because it's inconvenient to disagree, will echo with their negative comment. And then you make another negative comment. Before you got home, you guys have got you know, several tons worth of grievance to discuss about this person who really doesn't deserve your criticism if you're thinking about it. It's just that there's an echo chamber. You're just kind of agreeing with each other. Sometimes whole friendship groups can exist with the only thing they have in common being that they hate the same people. Don't we do that? We, we find friends who make us feel comfortable hating the right people. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you do this. In fact, let's be honest, all of us will do this if we're not careful. We're comfortable with people who have the correct opinion about certain people. Do you know what you should have? You should have friends who will challenge your opinion about other people. You should have people who will change the subject when you start to slander other people. Who will say, let's not gossip about them and talk about something else. That's what you should be as well. You should be the sort of person that changes the subject. Because how is David being faithful to Mephibosheth. How is he being loyal here? He's being treated with such disloyalty, and yet he's sadly kind of paying it forward to this dear young man who's done nothing wrong. It turns out, as the story goes further, Zeba is a crook, and Mephibosheth has been slandered falsely. He's blameless in this situation. So what we surely want is a king who knows everything about us, because David, David's problem here is he's ignorant about Mephibosheth. And we want to have a king and a judge who knows everything before he judges us. But do we? <laughs> this is my last point. Think about this. Do you really want a judge who knows everything about you? Who knows exactly what you're like? I don't know if you really do. The bad news is that that's exactly what you've got. Because God's son, God's perfect chosen king, God's greater David, he knows us exactly. 
David at this point is going through hell and all of his followers and possible followers are showing their colours one way or the other. They're going through emotional torment, they're succeeding or failing, showing loyalty or disloyalty to varying degrees. And David has got the difficult task of trying to evaluate, is this guy with me? Is he with me? Are they with me? What's going on? Jesus went through just the same thing. But Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus isn't tricked. He knows. No one ever tricked Jesus once. Not once. He wasn't even tricked by his closest friends. Some of us, we trick ourselves, but we can't trick Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus' close friends said to him, I would never deny you. I would never run. I'm your most loyal disciple. Jesus had to turn to that same man and say, you're going to deny me tonight. Tonight, three times you're going to deny me. Before sunrise, you will deny me. How can you say that? Because I know you, Peter. I know you better than you know yourself. Hey, it's not necessarily nice having someone alive who knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the darkest things about you, the things that you don't even want to talk about, the places you don't want to go. I don't want people to know what I'm really like. It's too late. He does. But here's the thing. <laughs> David, da- David doesn't really know what's going on. But David really ultimately in this situation, he's suffering for his own sins, for his own mistakes. Jesus, when he was deposed when he was sent from the city when Jesus went to take the cross Jesus was suffering not for his own sin none of it were the consequences of his own wrongdoing it was all for mine it was all for yours Jesus suffers for other people and because he took the cross because he took the penalty for our wrongdoing The way that Jesus deals with us, knowing everything about us, is he will actually hear no accusations against us. None. And man, are there accusations against us. (sighs) Accusations, you bet. Accusations against me. I, I am worthy of accusation. The list of things, the list of reasons why I should be seen as a traitor to King Jesus is very long. Jesus knows all of them. He knows all about it. What does he do? Jesus takes the blame. Jesus takes the penalty. Jesus has suffered for my betrayal of him. And because Jesus has paid the price for your treachery, for your mixed motives, for your wrong deeds, your wrong words, your wrong thoughts. Because of that, he's able to hear all of the accusations and say, not guilty, not guilty. I will hear nothing said against my own, my child, my beloved, nothing. I declare them righteous. 
This is how Jesus could do it. Jesus looking at these 12 disciples who scarpered and just ran away. Jesus says, you, you, you guys are going to be with me on thrones. You guys, I, I trust you. You stay with me through my troubles. This is what he says in Luke 22. He's so honouring. He's so affirming. It's so undeserved. But this is what he's like with us. If we belong to him, he really, in the end, he won't hear accusations against us. He will affirm. He will forgive. He will declare us righteous. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, these words, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who, who in, in the universe would be allowed to bring a charge against you? See, there is someone who charges against you all the time. There's someone who accuses you all the time. The Bible has a name for him, accuser. Accuser is his name. That word, accuser, Satan. That's what the word accuser means. That's what the word Satan is, accuser. He is busy accusing you, the Bible says, day and night. 24-7, he lives to accuse you. I just read to you, 24-7, Jesus lives to plead for you, to pray for you. He's for you. If you trust him, if you turn to him, if you belong to him, all those, all the guilt, all the shame that's piled on your account, the stuff that you feel deeply aware of, I know I'm a traitor to him. I fail him so often. Jesus, okay, I've taken the blame for that. I don't accuse you. I don't accuse you. I don't see you as a traitor now. I see you as mine, my beloved, at my table. Come sit, eat, drink at my table. We're going to do just that. We're going to come to the table in a moment. Take bread, take wine. We're going to belong with Jesus. This is for those of you who've made that decision to trust in Jesus. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you'd like to do that today, to put your trust in Jesus, to receive forgiveness for sin and to have future with him. What we do is we, we take bread and we take wine and we just, wherever we are in the room, you come, come to the table when you're ready in the first song and we'll just, we just come prayerfully. You might want to pray with someone. There's people at the table who would love to pray with you, answer questions, help you with things. And uh, we'll, while we're doing that, we'll have the, the musicians lead us in worship. Let me just pray. Father, thank you for your amazing kindness in giving us Jesus. Help us to trust him and his declaration of not guilty over our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.